you have to imagine crazy things in order to take the next steps. It all begins with imagination. Welcome to What The If. So glad to have you back again. All of you who have uh, been following along with the show, I, I must say I'm very, it, it, it warms my heart, my cold, cold heart, to get some uh, emails and, and tweets from you folks out there in the audience who say, there, there's a number of, I'm not sure if I've mentioned this to you, Matt, this is an interesting fact. Uh, a number of people who, when they join the show, I guess they hear an episode that they like, and I get an email or a tweet or a direct message or something that says, love your show. I am. I downloaded all the episodes and I'm working my way through them. Fantastic. Amazing. Amazing. E, by the way, if you're new and that sh- if that mood should strike you, whattheif.com is the website where you can get them all. Of course, your podcatcher will also give you access to the entire list. And one, uh, I'll address, since we're addressing the mailbag here, one frequent question is, I could only go back as far as episode 10. I didn't see any of the episodes one through nine. And the truth is, as I've mentioned, replied to a couple of people and told them, episodes one through nine, we were still getting our groove on. Still working our way in, you know? Fun fact, my great-grandfather, also named Philip Shane, Mm. apparently the first job he had when he came to America as a young man was he would wear people's shoes to break, wear people's new shoes, rich people, I suppose, or richer than him, (laughs) wear their new shoes to break them in. Wait, that was a job? That, hey, you know. Our, the Shanes are very entrepreneurial. I guess so. <laughs> you know, someday somebody's going to say, well, a podcast? What? That was a job? <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't blame them at all. Yeah. It was the thing. And, and by the way, if, you, if, if you're interested, the movie Avalon by Barry Levinson. Barry Levinson grew up in the same neighborhood as my family, uh, my father's side of the family in Baltimore. Mm-hmm. And he has a character in there who does that which might very well be my great-grandfather. Wow. Yeah, and, and people, people said some, you'd look down sometimes and he had two different shoes on. <laughs> because he, some, you know, I guess people were cheap, you know. Well, would you just break in my left shoe? That's right. <laughs> See, I've got, I don't know, this raises lots of questions about the, the shoe-wearing enterprise. But I'll, I'll save them for another time. Yeah. <laughs> he evolved that into... Um, he started, he got a push cart, as you do back mm-hmm. in the day, and he, he would go by the shoe factories and pick up the shoes that were slightly damaged. You know, they, they called them seconds, apparently, but oh, sure. know, okay. mildly damaged. They just, they just didn't want to put it on the shelves. And so they would give them to him. He would collect them, or maybe he would pull them out of the trash, you know, wouldn't surprise me. And he would sell those. So you could buy sort of like, you know, lightly damaged shoes from him. And uh, as today, you might on Amazon. <laughs> and 
From that, he opened a shoe store finally and eventually had ah, four, okay. an empire of four stores in downtown Baltimore. Wow. That's a man who loved shoes. Yep. Yep. And that shoe store eventually went back down to one eventually. And my cousin who was running it only recently stopped after 105 years. Wow. Closed the shoe side. He, he had built another wholesale business on the side, but he closed the retail shoe side because my great aunt Shirley, I think she was getting up around like nine, past 90 years old and decided to, you know, she didn't have to come into work every day. <laughs> it was time to retire. She's probably right. Yeah. 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 I'm Philip Shane, documentary filmmaker. And I just shared with you a mini documentary of the Shane family history. With me is Matt Stanley. Do, do you really are Dr. Matt Stanley? Is that correct? Uh, that is technically true. Yeah. I have a piece of paper that says so. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you have people call you that? Only to mock me. <laughs> Would you use that in a sentence? Nice job on the project there, Dr. Stanley. <laughs> That's excellent. <laughs> I like it. I like it. And you are a, you describe yourself, as, you self-identify as? A historian of science. Historian of science, indeed. And also a karate instructor? Uh, that is true. My night job is uh, I teach martial arts. Amazing. Amazing. I bet if anybody calls you anything sarcastic there, it'll be hell to pay. Uh, there are different rules there. That is true. <laughs> Do they call you sensei? Uh, yeah. My wife and I uh, teach together, so we're both sensei. Yeah. That's amazing. I didn't know you guys teach together. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. So uh, I smell a documentary coming. <laughs> I must resist. must resist. This is a game. What the if is a game? It's a very serious game sometimes, mm -hmm. but it's a game. Sometimes the, the existence of the entire universe hinges on it. Yeah, it's true. The outcome could go either way. It's almost as fun as off-track betting. I don't know if they, they don't have that anymore. <laughs> I don't know if they do. Yeah. yeah, when I moved here, it was a weird thing where you could go into a little shop and watch TVs and bet on the horse races. No betting, no betting, please, as David Letterman used to say also. No wagering. <laughs> That's right. No wagering. But we, uh, we, we take a concept and we run with it. Now, last week, we're going to continue. We had a cliffhanger last week. Part one, as it evolved, about global warming, also known as climate change, when I guess it feels like being more politically correct. It was Mike Holland of Milwaukee had shared with us that, that, that idea. And for that, for the honor of being chosen as hero of the if of mm -hmm. the week, you are bethroned as a master ifer. It doesn't have, we, we don't have like a doctor or a... No, but we should, we should find some kind of Latin title we can give people. Yeah, yeah, we'll work on that, Mike. If if you um, if you also share uh, first of all share either way we we get a lot of uh, emails and tweets communicate communiques of any kind 
inter intercontinental cables, uh, carrier pigeon, however you want to send them in. And we do read them all. And I do try to respond to them all. And occasionally, though, one of them uh, rises to the top as like, wow, we're going to do that as a show. That's a great idea. So send in your suggestions. We try to get through them and honor as many as we can. This week, we sort of sub idea, sub if, or, or, or corollary if, sent in to us by Amira Youssef of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And Amira has a great question. She says, I'll rephrase this in a what-the-if manner in a moment, but, but basically a simple question. How can she get the people, how can she get the people around her to care about global warming? It's one thing for all of us who are interested in the topic to learn about it. And yet there's that second phase, which is how do we, you know, carry on the enthusiasm for science is one thing, but also urgency. Yeah. And I should say this is essentially the same problem that Carl Sagan and various environmental scientists had back in the 70s and 80s when people were first discovering this sort of thing, is how do you get someone interested in these questions and get them to pay attention to what you're saying? Because this is not part of the training of scientists. Learning how to make computer models and solve equations doesn't tell you much about how to talk to people. So what the if is, what the if you went to explain global warming to somebody with the hope of getting them interested and motivated to take action on preventing it, join you in that fight, such as it is, depending on whatever you're doing, even if it's just knowing about it. What the if you went, imagine this, I'm sure everyone in our audience has had this experience. But what the if you went to share something you love about science and you think is important about science to somebody and they just sort of look confused or bored? Yeah, they shrug their shoulders. Yeah. Right? There, there, there's no more devastating a response than, so what? Yes, that's right. So what? What the if you got a so what at a, par a cocktail party and you have only a moment to your your life has basically reached a fork in the road of future possibilities right which multiverse are you going to go into the one where you continue to have a conversation with this person and get them into get them to understand enthusiastic and, and even then eventually want to share that with other people at the party and eventually everyone at the party's talking about it <laughs> or the other multiverse where they turn around and go back to the shrimp bar. Yeah. So one, uh, the, even though scientists aren't explicitly taught how to talk to people, there are implicit rules about how scientists talk. And the general rule is take it easy. Be, be mellow. So like if you read a published science paper, it is dull and it's not dull because scientists are dull, but it's dull by design 
because it's sort of implicitly suggested that if you're too excitable about your material, that makes you less trustworthy. So scientists are encouraged to speak in a moderate, low tone and to not get excited about things. I'm familiar with, in general, what you're talking about, but I never thought about it as you don't want to sound excited about it. That's right. And this is actually an important rule. So like the, the paper by Watson and Crick that suggested the double helix structure of DNA is incredibly boring. It's a paragraph long. You would never know it was exciting unless somebody told you. The paper announcing the detection of the cosmic microwave background back in the 60s is a paragraph long, incredibly dull. I give it to my students and say, what do you think the significance of this is? And they have no idea. It could, I mean, it, it could be part of the terms and conditions of your Apple Watch. Uh, it's, it's just boring and technical ease. Um, and scientists get rewarded for that. Like if you can, if you can present your ground shaking discovery in as, uh, as sort of even a voice as possible, that means that that's a sign that you're a rational, level-headed scientist. There must be a little bit of an element of like, it's a fun game. Uh, trying to write it that way. Uh, yes, to outdull somebody. <laughs> yeah. Um, but the problem is uh, that kind of language, the kind of verbiage, isn't very good at getting people excited about things. Right. Okay. So if you do need to get people excited about things like the destruction of human civilization, dullness is not a great strategy. Yeah. And, and in fact, here's something interesting I just noticed about that, that the, the destruction of human civilization, that actually, that grabs your attention and may even cause more problems for the follow-up about global warming, because it's like, you're now, you now really want something exciting. You mean in the sense of like setting a um, expectation? Right. Like, oh, you're going to tell me something. Like if you say destruction of human civilization, the thing that's going to come to mind is nuclear war, a meteor, something that has a lot of flames involved. Oh, right. Yeah. Um, so this is... Or aliens. Right. So, so by the late 70s, it's clear that climate change is going to be a devastating thing for the planet. But most of the people talking about it are talking in this scientific tone, in this scientific register, in technical journals. So it's not getting a whole lot of attention outside the scientific field. Sagan's strategy, so remember Sagan was particularly interested in the nuclear winter problem. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So Sagan's strategy is, says, well, you know, I've already learned how to talk to people about science via Cosmos and The Tonight Show. And he says, I'm really good at getting people excited about science. But so far, I've gotten them excited about science in a positive way. But now I have to get them excited about some of the negative things science has to say, like warning of the destruction of human civilization. By the way, interestingly, there was another thing I was thinking this morning, another problem with this helping getting people interested in global warming is that it is not like a cool, exciting 
thing. I can probably get people interested in space elevators more easily than yes than this because it's kind of like a bummer and and kind of like being sick or you have something wrong with your car. The solution means you just go back to the way like you don't get nothing's better. You're just like oh you know life as it is continues. We're all going to die. That's not a great conversation starter at the party. It's the party problem. The party problem. Yeah. Probably goes back all the way to Aristotle. I, I bet Aristotle had party problems. <laughs> no doubt. <laughs> Even though it was a toga party. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> oh, it, because it was a toga party. Let's talk about how catapults are going to destroy the planet. <laughs> <laughs> So if you try to talk about these these sort of global disaster threats in a scientific way, in that moderate, dull tone, it doesn't really go anywhere. So Sagan's solution is, well, let's see if we can scare the hell out of everybody. So he goes full-on apocalyptic. So instead of... So actually, before he and his group publish any scientific papers on nuclear winter. Sagan writes a piece on it for Parade Magazine. You remember this? I do. Yeah. So this was, I don't know if they have it anymore, actually. But it was sort of an insert for the Sunday paper. Like, you'd have the funny, the funnies, you know, the, the cartoons. And then packed in with that was Parade Magazine, which us- would usually have, like, recipes and home decorating tips but then one sunday the cover story is carl sagan explaining how the earth is going to be utterly destroyed now that's a that that shows what a gift he had and and what a privilege he had as a scientist having gotten to the position he was at that not only were they print that story but it really was probably only because of him exactly right and and he did that and he knew that and he did that explicitly. Right. But if you can imagine, you know, sort of you, so you read Peanuts and you read Marmaduke and then you turn the page and Carl Sagan is telling you about how the Earth's environment is going to collapse. And I should say that to a certain degree, this works, right? His all these storytelling skills that he developed on Cosmos to get people excited about science. Uh, he suddenly turns to this apocalyptic turn. And it's very effective in the sense that it gets people worried and therefore policymakers worried. But his fellow scientists are really not happy about it because he had violated this expectation, right? Scientists are supposed to be level-headed and calm, and he was not. He was freaking out. And, and even another bit of context for the younger folks in our audience, who which could be even be 40 years old and younger— <laughs> <laughs> 30 years no no probably 30 anyway the, there was n- there was no or there was extremely little cable television at that time and that's right yeah. you didn't have dis- a pretty short if discovery channel or history channel existed it, it was in a very yeah, i don't sp- think very sp- did. yeah and so let's let's just say for all intents and purposes cable tv didn't exist and so you didn't have, like, nowadays, you could turn on television, you will see apocalyptic shows just <laughs> constantly, both sci-fi, and, but also even much more so, um, you know, on Discovery Channel, it's just full of those things, and National Geographic Channel, and uh, for better or worse. And so, it's even more unusual 
that he's, or just the kind of thing, he, or maybe it's right. easier for him to get attention. You know, in other words, well, today, if you did that, it'd be like, Dumb. yeah, it's a new thing at the time, right? Science, um, this is not the, the vision of scientists that people are expecting. So, so to answer the, the sort of overall question here, one strategy that Sagan uses, he says, well, if I want to get people paying attention to things like global warming, I should scare them as deeply and profoundly as possible. And then, this is an important corollary, tell them what to do about that fear. And his answer was, write the president, write your congressperson, right? Turn, turn your fear into political pressure. Right. So step one for Amira, I just want to point that out. And for all of you preparing going to go to your next cocktail parties, I'm sure you are. Now, if, if you're not into cocktail parties, it's not a regular occasion for me. This, this, should, this will help you, motivate you to go. Because you have a mission now to save the planet. <laughs> so, so what we've learned so far, step one, scare the hell out of people. Well, I should say that was Sagan's decision, right? That was his strategy. And to a certain degree, it worked because it did get people upset and interested. Um, but the downside was, is that he lost a lot of credibility in that situation as well. Uh, many people stopped thinking of him as a rational scientist and started thinking about him as a crazed apocalyptic prophet. And that, so that, that cost him social currency. Wow. So, okay. So, so step two is now you've got to recover a little, you've got their attention, <laughs> but they're thinking you might be crazy. And so the shrimp bar looms as a, potential uh, direction for that your yeah all right your, so, your, so kind of the the opposite strategy then it would be the al gore strategy um the, the powerpoint strategy so al gore tries to figure out how to scare you while staying level-headed and dull al gore vice president to bill clinton yes okay and one of the first high-profile people to talk about climate change. And I should say he's one of the people who was very impressed with, with Sagan's work. But he, I mean, I don't know how much of this was sort of rational planning on his part or not, but he, he definitely steps back from Sagan's kind of emotional presentation to be purely rational. And the idea there is if you present people the facts clearly enough they will be persuaded and act accordingly. It's so interesting that the scientist is the one who feels the need to get dramatic, you know, yep. get the attention <laughs> of the crowd. And the politician is the one who says, hang on, let me be more fast yeah, let's, let's ease off a little bit. Yeah. Here. Interesting. Interesting. It's a good cop, bad cop from the opposite <laughs> sides. <laughs> and there's an important sense in which both are somewhat successful that they do get people talking and thinking but they both fail in important ways too so the sagan model fails because it's so extreme that people stop listening they're like oh you're just being hysterical and the al gore extreme is oh this is so dull i can't sit through another powerpoint presentation it's a good question about al gore is whether this was a 
chosen thing or his personality is kind of that that sort of yeah a that might just be sort of his natural approach i should say in the carl sagan papers in washington there are letters uh between the two of them trying to figure out what the best way to do this is interesting wow wow so and those did, are an interesting read yeah and d- d- basically they just each kind of pushed their that's right. They Idea. each decide to go their own way. Yeah. 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 Interesting. And, and I suppose another major step forward in getting the public's attention on this issue is the documentary. And I'm pleased to say, uh, as a documentary filmmaker, one of my more <laughs> esteemed colleagues, you know, uh, Guggenheim made a film uh, with him, with Al Gore, called... Uh, an Inconvenient Truth. Yeah, it's a fabulous film. To me, that seemed like a landmark moment in this issue. Uh, yes, I think so. It takes the Al Gore PowerPoint presentation literally, but also gives you, it's a little bit, it becomes a little bit cinematic. They, they, you get a biography of him and, and, and uh, you get a story, actually, which I think both would agree that a story form, which also is the motivation for this show in many ways. The series, what they have, is to find a story. So you, can, you understand more through stories. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that's actually where uh, we end up with all of this, is that neither fear-mongering, Sagan style, nor pure information dump, Al Gore style, really work particularly well Okay, they're they're both good for preaching to the converted, as it were. That is, if you already agree with them, Sagan will give you lots of good lines and Gore will give you lots of good facts. But when you're talking to your uncle over Thanksgiving, uh, who just doesn't buy any of this stuff, neither of those work particularly well. That is, it's too easy to dismiss either one. So science communicators have spent a lot of time in the last 10, 15 years trying to figure out what's wrong with this. Why can't we convince people? Right. And let me just paint a picture there that I'm not sure a lot of people are aware of. There is an army of silent heroes. They're not really silent, but sort of a little bit invisible heroes in this world of science communicators who are not there are the ones on TV like Bill Nye and, and Neil Tyson and Brian Cox in, in the UK. Um, but for the most part, we're talking about who who are who are all these science communicators? Writers? Oh, so I mean, I'm thinking of science communicators. So there's uh, you know so a, a few different flavors. So there are science journalists, you know, people like Dennis Overby at the, the New York Times. There are science writers like uh, Carl Zimmer. These are people who's, who think of themselves as their, their mission is to translate between the technical scientists and what we'd say ordinary people, non-professional scientists who, who are interested in these sorts of things. But then there are also academics, people like me, who study how that communication occurs and when does it work well and when does it not. 
And and so what's the what's the have there been breakthroughs of any kind? Well, I mean, I think one of the 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 important things that I've seen is that just dumping facts on people doesn't work. Just getting them upset doesn't work. But works. But what works fairly well is telling them a story. That is, so if you tell them the story of how scientists came to think about climate change, that's much more persuasive than simply stating the conclusion they came to. Ah, kind of as we've been doing a little bit more in the previous episode, but like this is it. Yep. We're sort of learning how, right. how it came to be. Interesting. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And yet I've not, no, maybe I'm not seeing a vast amount of science communication at the moment, but I'm not seeing. I'm not seeing or hearing that people do not do that because, and I think the scientists don't do it because they're not trained to do it. Right? They're not trained to think in a story kind of fashion, and uh, so that's the that's the model of of communicating science that's still pretty dominant. Is just. Just, just, the stating the, just stating the results, yeah. The, just the facts, ma'am. Or the occasional apocalyptic thing as well. Um, well, I say, but that's still on TV. seen as somewhat extreme. Yeah, that's true. You know, it's interesting because, uh, not to go too deep into television uh, criticism or whatever, but like on, on the newer, the revamped Cosmos uh, that Neil Tyson did with Andrew Ann and he, you know, there's more than one episode, I believe. There's one in particular, one image that comes to mind that stood out as them really trying to emphasize, you know, to carry, get this message through to people. And he, he created, but like temples to, oh, the different eras of extinction, right? And he said that, you know, there have been mass extinctions in, in the planet's history, maybe right. four or five of them that we know of, major ones. And, but the, the one that's coming is caused by humans. And so right. he presents a picture of the destroyed planet. Um, now, do you think, I think maybe another part of the issue here is that, and I'm curious if, if, if the, your colleagues talk about this, that to get someone enthused about science doesn't require them to do anything. It's like, Free it, to think anyway, right? If they're, they're they need to be willing to invest some mental energy, yeah. True, true, true. But in other words, you know, one of Carl Sagan's famous phrases was "billions and billions," <laughs> and people used, it became a joke after a while. Billions and millions, and right. And yeah. Neil Tyson has carried on that tradition in his own way. So you can you can get people to appreciate all kinds of things in nature inspiring and and it was looking at the wonder of the natural world is one thing but if the there's nothing the person has to do from that point forward now zoos interestingly i've just came to mind that at the zoo you go and you really do learn to appreciate the animals right and there is and, and again i guess this really started in the 70s and probably really boosted much more into the 80s and 90s that the zoos became about conservation too and, and yes that's right that is a a, a new thing yep. yeah and not some i mean maybe now i haven't been to a zoo recently but maybe now they're including global warming in that 
but it was always about farming or uh, you know just urban development taking over natural habitats or poaching. Um, yeah, or I think you see cli- I think you see climate change discussions at uh, zoos pretty frequently now. Yeah. yeah, oh, that's cool. That's cool. But that I can, in other words, even save the whales. There's an interesting one. Ah, yeah, <laughs> because it's another thing and the solution is fairly simple you you can get motivated by like i could easily be motivated i i'm people are easily motivated to save the whales not everybody yeah that's right and and an important reason why is that you don't actually have to change your life very much to save the whales at least in the back in the 1980s sense right um don't eat don't eat whales Okay, that's true. true. Um, Write to your congressperson and ask them to support an international ban. But the the whale eating economy is pretty small. Okay, it doesn't really take a a whole lot of uh, self sacrifice um, to help save the whales. And also another another landmark documentary, The Cove, much more recently, Mm -hmm. which shows I think it's dolphin dolphins, yeah, hunting food i guess in uh, japan it's so bloody and the same with if you see footage like greenpeace used to you know get boats out there to uh to film what it looks like when people are harpooning whales and it's just so gruesome that it's you're motivated there is interestingly it's not apocalyptic it's like in it's, it's interesting because it comes down to the story level again a little bit here's an individual creature and it's easily, you know, magnified. You can you can make it a quick jump without problem to like all the creatures like that. Sure, you just don't want to see that thing, and so or or, or the clubbing of the uh, yeah, baby, baby seals, seals right? right? Or yeah. or even oh, actually, so we can say I do think that one of the most powerful images in helping people think about global warming has been the polar bears. The polar bear, yep. Because they're, as uh, some scholars say, they're charismatic mammals, right? So whales and polar bears are are mammals. They sort of share a morphology with us. The bears look a lot like dogs. We have teddy bears, right? Whales sing. They they live in families. Whereas, uh, you know, frogs. Right, frogs are much are are a much starker environmental marker than polar bears are, but frogs are cold and smelly, and or even bees. You know, there's all this talk about the bees are disappearing, insects are disappearing, but kind of like, I mean, I know that's a bad thing intellectually, but also viscerally, I'm like, well, good. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds great. If you could get rid of all the mosquitoes, it'd be fantastic. And so, yeah, okay, so I think we've identified something there, too, right? It must be that you can see the an individual animal who's a mammal, so you can easily relate to it, or you, th- you can personify it anyway, and they're suffering in these images. Like, you know, they're walking around and on the, sitting on a tiny piece of ice is floating in the water and, and is starving. Whereas, interesting, even Carl Sagan talking about nuclear winter and whatever, you're still not seeing, and you don't have individual images of someone, and it's not actually happening right now. Mm-hmm. Yep, uh, and this is a this is a problem specifically with nuclear winter because, as Sagan used to say, we can only run the experiment once. 
Uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. Right? So you, you yeah. can't actually convince people. Yeah. But this is generally true with something like climate change, uh, is that you can't, by the time you're seeing it happening, it's too late. So you need to figure out how to persuade people of its significance in advance. And that's hard to do. Okay. And that's one of the reasons that, you know, if I want to persuade you of conservation of energy, I'll set up some experiments in the lab and we'll sit down for a few hours and we'll do a bunch of them. And hopefully I'll be able to persuade you by demonstrating this thing over and over again. But with climate change, I can't do that. So instead, I have to take all these inferential pieces of evidence and stitch them together. And if you're not used to thinking inferentially, that can be a real challenge. It's even like I'm thinking about how in, in the 70s, say, the environmental movement was helped very much by, um, certainly by people who could eloquently speak to it. But, it, you know, particular images, or you could actually see people suffering. Like, I remember the people who lived in Love Canal area, which yes, was heavily helps. polluted. Right. Like, people lived in poisoned neighborhoods and they were getting cancer. Um, or Aaron, you know, the story of Aaron Brockovich is another one. We, we, we can imagine these. And the crying um, Native American Indian ad. Uh, yes, that's right. Even Huge. as, uh, even as a, a pernicious racial stereotype was uh, uh, very um, persuasive. And I think the classic example here is Rachel Carson. Right? So her silent spring is it had been known for a while that industrial pollutants were significant. But she was the one who figured out how to tell a story about it. And it was a story about silence, right? The lack of birds, right? Uh, um, and that's what got people's attention. Even though the technical knowledge had been out there for some time, but she figured out how to get people to listen to it. These are animals we like. Like I was saying about the insects, kind of, you yes, know, they're exactly. not pleasing. <laughs> Unless you're particularly uh, into that. Yeah, so birds. Whales, polar bears, yeah. Uh, birds also, uh, mammals, I see, yes. Now, in terms of the, the stories behind global warming, there's a wonderful website called The Discovery of Global Warming, and it's made by uh, Spencer Wirt, who is a fellow historian of science. And it is, it's, it's chopped up nicely into digestible chapters, and everything is referenced. So, and he continues to update it. That's the, the beauty of a website instead of a book is that he can continue working on it. But it's a beautiful example of the kinds of stories that you can use to get people thinking about these things. Um, and then once they're interested, then it has all of the references and sources that you can drill down for, for, for further persuasion. Right. Say the website again. It's, it's called The Discovery of Global Warming. I don't remember the address off the top of my head. Let me see if I can Google it quick. I'll put a link in the in our show notes. And while you do that, another powerful image that comes to mind was the Earthrise, something we've talked about now in a couple episodes, the image that the astronauts took of the moon. Uh, I'm sorry, the, the Earth rising, so to speak, over the moon. First time people saw the planet as a whole and, and in a very poetic way. And Carl Sagan's Pale Blue Dot poem. Boy, people, yeah, people Pale Blue love, Dot's beautiful. Yeah. Essay. People love that. Okay, so uh, Spencer's site. So it's Spencer Wart, W-E-A-R-T, if you want to Google him. 
And it's history.aip.org slash climate. So that's the online version. And then there's a dead tree book version too. If you want one that you can take with you on the subway. Looking forward in time, I'm guessing, you know, the images of, so we got polar bears. So there's, there's images of animals suffering. It's making some impact, some headway. Mm -hmm. But the point, the question then is, when can we see people suffering? Like, like I said, in, in the environmental thing, you could see, I mean, the Indian... Right. Yeah, it, so it, I should say there, people are already suffering because of global warming. Um, the problem, as is usually the case, is that it's poor people who are suffering. So it's, you know, Bangladesh and Thailand that are already seeing the effects of increasingly severe storms and even slight sea level rises. But those are poor countries that don't have a lot of pull. So until lower Manhattan starts flooding, it's hard to convince the people with the power that this is a really important thing. And there are those islands, I guess, like Micronesia or other small islands that are virtually at sea level. That are exactly right. Disappearing. That will simply vanish. But again, yeah, it's sort of like, well, those people live in some. It just seems automatically like, well, they live in a harsh environment anyway. So, and Bangladesh is we've heard of, you know, even before global warming or when that was an issue, flooding has always been an issue there. I mean, I guess you could say the poor people live in the places that flood all the time. For instance. That's right. We in the developed West are already we were already used to ignoring people in Bangladesh suffering from floods. So. Having to ignore it a little bit more isn't that big a deal. So Sagan's solution to that was to try and convince you that we're all in this together. That is, there is no part of the earth that would be spared from these sorts of disasters. And sometimes that works and sometimes it doesn't. But it can be hard to persuade people that their fates are tied together in that way. I must, and, and Al Gore does the same. Yeah, in the inconvenient truth, and there's a sequel to that too. By the way, um, a more inconvenient truth, I think it's called. But you know, I, I can remember now the images of they show maps of New York, and this is what it's going to be in 2050 or whatever. And yeah, it's sort of like a weird science fiction scenario. That being said, we did have Hurricane Sandy, for instance, in New York, Superstorm Sandy, and I think with the number of storms that are happening, people are starting to get it as well. That is going to be the question, right? Because this is, again, one of these problems where if you, if you start from the end conclusion of science, then it's obvious to you how um, climate change is related to increasing storm frequency and intensity. But if you're not but if you don't already have that conclusion to start with, it's not obvious. Like, it's the weather. The weather is, by definition, the most changeable, unpredictable kind of thing. So this is where the stories come in, in being helpful, in that if you tell the stories of how some other people got from a position of skepticism to a position of understanding, um, then that's a model you can follow yourself. Oh, that's interesting. You mentioned that. And again, one thing that's obviously implicit there is that these are scientists and it's important to present the idea that they were skeptical at first. 
Right. Because people just think they just, scientists are just coming at them. It, it's like an impulsive thing or it's just a cultural thing or something, right? And so, yeah, to know that these, you know, you might, res- I think everybody respects scientists even if they quibble about certain issues, you know. But in general, they're re- regarded as brilliant people and hardworking people. And to know that they worked, they had to work, they had to gather an enormous amount of information before they were convinced. That's right. It took it took effort on their part, too. Yeah. 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 So, bottom line, it sounds like the, the important thing is, for Amira and for all of us who are going and going to be talking to some other human who is likewise endangered, as we all are, by ourselves yeah. and our civilization and its, uh, its, its uh, technological uh, problems, is use images. Try that. This is just a sort of simple science communication tool. Use an image. Think of the images that impact you the most. Amira, let, let us know how, how that goes. And all of you out there, all of our, you are all ifers, and you are all super ifers, because we are going to be super people, like supermen and superwomen, superboys and supergirls, to save the planet. And we're going to use it by capturing people with powerful images that allow you then to convey a little bit more information. If you want to know a little bit more about how the whole, the sort of first part of this, how scientists did begin to work on this, listen to our previous episode. Yeah. And and continue. Stay with us. What the if is uh, just sort of noticing and bringing more to the foreground something which is sort of motivation for us doing this show. And then, Matt, it's your whole career of of learning how to convey things that we're interested in to other people and get them interested in both positive things, just the wonder of the universe, wonder of the natural world, uh, but also important things like save the planet for God's sake. (laughs) What's the matter with you? We can all be superheroes. That is true. Yeah. Yeah. Go to our website, whattheif.com, and you can find that previous episode if you haven't listened to it already. And by the way, if you subscribe, if you don't know, if you know how to subscribe, do it. If you've been thinking, meaning to do it, if you do it now, it's great. You know, the, the episodes just on, it's totally free. Episodes show up automatically on your listening device, your phone, computer, your iPad, whatever, tablet. If you don't know how to subscribe, it couldn't be easier. Go to whattheif.com, click on the word subscribe, and boom. Up comes a, a list of buttons, that, and you just click the one that's the thing you use. You use iTunes, click that. Boom. You use Google Play, click that. You use Stitcher, click that. You use Castro, click that. There's so many. And there's more every day. I try to keep updating that list. Just click on that. If there's something you use that isn't on that list, let us know. Feedback at whattheif.com is the email. Send us, like mike last week amira this week and and all of our super efforts who have written uh, in the past miguel from south africa and know that we do read i get all your tweets and, and emails um saying how much you enjoy the show and questions and ideas and, and we do you know we'll have a dialogue about that it's all fantastic and, and, and some of that stuff is going to boil bubble up into the airwaves as we go forward and if we choose your idea you get a finger puppet Amira, you will receive a special finger puppet. And Mike, 
is going to receive two finger puppets because his idea spread across two episodes. Two fingers. Will he put it on both his index fingers, one on each hand, and fight? <laughs> or will he put them, you could put it on your middle finger and your index finger of one hand to make a peace symbol. Which also in other countries is a horrible insult, I think. Oh, uh, well, that's true. Yeah. But V for victory. It could also be that. On Twitter, we are at What The If Show. Another great place to uh, follow us. You'll get all, uh, we put all kinds of stories up there. I'm, I'm always finding fascinating things up that I see in the news. And also just beautiful pictures from NASA, from the Hubble, from various things. Uh, amateur astronomers, we put all that up there and people retweet them and love them and enjoy them. Matt, thank you very much. We couldn't do this without you. Certainly. We could not save the planet without you, Doctor. That would be nice. <laughs> Next week, we don't know. I don't know. I mean, we got to continue saving the planet, but there's so much that can be ifed. There's yep. so much ifing to be done. The planet is big, the solar system is large, the universe, the observable universe is large, and then there is the infinite universe beyond all to be ifed. When we contemplate all the ifs, all the myriad, the Google times Google to the to the Googleith to the ten to the Googleith number of ifs. That's a lot of ifs. Yeah. That's a lot of ifs. <laughs> we cannot help but look at that and scream. What? what? The, the is. is, is, is.